Welcome to the show. I'm just eating some apple crisp entomans. Oh, thank you for sharing. For the fall. I mean... Thank you for sharing. We could start positively. Oh, Shannon, I didn't think it was that bad of an idea. Pick some real shit. <laughs> Dark shit lately. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the murder and torture of Sylvia Likens. And y'all might not have heard of this story. There were a couple of minor movies made back in the aughts about this. They came out actually in the same year, 2007, that we're also going to talk about briefly here towards the end. One of them is called The Girl Next Door, and the other one was called An American Crime. And they both very differently, I have to say, Mm -hmm. explicate this story in their own ways without all the facts, of course, like like most movies. But they're, they were so different. In fact, I watched whichever the one is with Elliot in it. Uh, American Crime. <laughs> I watched American Crime first and I was like, that was not bad. And that's such an interesting ending the way they tried to, they did. I won't give it away, but like the way they did the ending, I thought was really creative. And then I watched The Girl Next Door and I felt like I was watching a, a Hallmark movie oh. of torture and murder. It was it, really odd. And it just felt more... Um, the characters were far less complicated. They were more surfaced, in my opinion. Absolutely. The way that they depicted... More black and white. Gertrude um, Banaszewski, I think is her name. They, she, her name was Ruth in that movie, but because that one was more loosely based. But it just felt a little bit more like, here's the story where American crime was way more context and a lot more depth, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. So let's tell the story so that you know what the F we're talking about. Sylvia Likens came from a large family, a poor family, low SES, from southern Boone County, Indiana, just northwest of Indianapolis, apparently. Her father, Lester, had an eighth grade education, moved from job to job. He'd, he'd had a, like a laundry thing and worked in a factory and restaurants and, you know, sort of never really found his spot. And he'd also traveled with carnivals uh, selling food from a concession cart, basically, to make living. It was this work to which he and his wife decided to return to in the summer of 1965. And so that that meant finding someone to watch over four of their children. The oldest was Diana, who was actually grown and married, so that was not to be worried about. There were two boys, Danny and Benny, who were put with their grandparents, actually. And then there were two girls, Sylvia and Jenny, And uh, Jenny was actually shy, insecure. She had had polio as a child, so she had a bit of a limp. And Sylvia was very confident, a confident kid. The nickname I saw was they called her Cookie. (laughs) She Mm. was pretty outspoken. So she always, she had an opinion. She had a, like a cute little missing front tooth. You know, she just like kind of an adorable kid Mm -hmm. and a smart, outgoing kid and friendly and a mutual friend had introduced the Likens to Gertrude, who Kathy mentioned, and who I guess briefly went by the name Gertrude Wright, but we'll just call her Gertrude, who lived in a big rented house in East New York and was willing to look after Jenny and Sylvia for 20 bucks a week. And so that seemed like a good deal, but you can kind of tell at least the way it's said in the stories that I've read and also in these movies is that they didn't know her. <laughs> no, no, not They at were all. leaving their girls with someone they didn't really it know. Like, it was like uh, Sylvia's good friend. Mm-hmm. 
right, from school or whatever. Gertrude was already caring. <laughs> so this woman they're going to leave their kids with was already caring for seven of her own children. Paula, 17, John, 12, Stephanie, 15, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James and Dennis were 18 months. So she's already got a full full house. The six oldest children had one father, and then the youngest child, Dennis, had uh, a different father. So from the beginning, there were issues between Sylvia and Gertrude's 17-year-old daughter, Paula. And this sort of made the house in 1965 not not a great place and so of course you move two kids into a house with seven kids already in it there's going to be even if it was like a blended step family there's going to be issues yeah and these kids you know so gertrude was actually frail and underweight she but she also used because of that probably she used a lot of co- corporal punishment in her parenting style mm-hmm. she had a fraternity style paddle and she also had a thick leather belt left behind by her ex-husband and, and she would use these two weapons on the children to get them to comply they would get quote unquote taken upstairs and slapped around and weakened and then beaten with these items basically And so Gertrude began using the paddle on Sylvia and Jenny for various offenses, you know, exchanging soft drinks at the grocery store and being suspected of stealing and all of these kinds of things. And so they started to get this kind of like, you're going to get a beating if you're getting in trouble type of Mm -hmm. environment. And Gertrude had asthma and she would feel quote unquote, like too weak to discipline the children. And so Neighborhood children began to crowd the home to participate in this torture, and it became, it upped and upped and upped. It became not just the culture of corporal punishment, which was, could be quite common in those times, and and didn't escalate to these points. Unfortunately, she involved her own children, and she involved neighborhood children in these beatings. The children would take turns practicing judo Mm -hmm. and hurling her against the wall, kicking, beating her, extinguishing cigarettes out on her skin as the other teenagers would watch. Sylvia was also forced to undress in the living room and use household items like Coke bottles to insert inside of her. And while everyone watched, there was all of this humiliation all of these beatings, she would be forced to put in scalding hot baths to cleanse her sins. There was a religious component to this, and it went on and on and on. Ugh. Mm. After the beatings, that would be the ritual of these hot baths because it would be like you've had a beating, and now to cleanse your system of the the sins, you're having a hot bath. And, of course, it would scald and it would burn her. And during this process, Sylvia was no longer permitted to leave the house. She was locked away. She was put in the cellar and given crackers to eat, not able to use the restroom. Gertrude would tell her other kids that Sylvia was a prostitute and they eventually used a needle to carve those words into her stomach. There was a bloody mattress that was found that she lived on, I guess, in the cellar. And... You can imagine after months and months of this that 
Sylvia was dying. And so when Gertrude realized that Sylvia was dying, she forced her to write a note saying that a gang of boys had beaten her up. And the plan was, can you imagine this? Like, no, I can't. There was a plan. Gertrude's plan was to blindfold her and dump her in the nearby woods with this note. And Sylvia tried to escape, but Gertrude and one of the boys had stopped her, beating her again, throwing her back in the basement. And so Sylvia Likens died on October 26, 1965. The cause of her death was determined to be brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock induced by Sylvia's extensive skin damage. She had suffered extreme malnutrition and was buried in Oak Hill Cemetery in Lebanon. You know, listening to the story, you you mentioned a few things that I had told you before when we were planning on doing this episode and I read the story, I actually had sent a text to Shannon and I'm like, I, as you all know from previous episodes, I've seen a lot of things in the work that I do. I've had to read a lot of things in the work that I've, that I do. But by far, this was one of the worst stories I've ever heard. And to be honest with you, it's been labeled as one of the worst crimes in American history. I think what makes this so incredibly horrific for me is it's one thing when someone is abused or dies by homicide, but the lengths to which this woman used groupthink and humiliation and sexuality, when you think about mentally torturing, especially a young woman at this time, which was what, the 60s? Yes. How incredibly demoralizing and how alone she must have felt, how terrified, and then to have to literally expose, as a 16-year-old, she's developing. Mm-hmm. She's having periods. Mm-hmm. She is already the object of any boy her age's affection, and she's put on public display. And when earlier when you were saying how Gertrude would give her crackers or whatever, this was following days without water. So the crackers were given in a way of like, try eating that. Yep. Because if your mouth is dry, mm-hmm. it's already hard enough. Imagine being dehydrated. Awful. Everything this woman did was with the intention to add insult to injury. And she would, you know, if she would pass out in the middle of her torture, this woman would literally take her head and bang it up against a bathtub to wake her up. So you're looking at, and I'm sitting here, I'm going, okay, I need, when I watched this movie, and I think I'd said this to you over the phone, I'm like, I got to look up this woman a little bit. Because how much did she, did she have internalized that she was projecting onto this girl? Not that that's an excuse of any kind, but you have to be some level of fucked up yeah, she's definitely a violent sexual sadist. And we don't get a lot of females no. that we talk about that are violent sexual sadists, but that's what it looks like to me. And her parents, I mean, it, everything from her parents giving her up and never coming home to leaving the world this way, thats a, that. there needs to be a special kind of hell for people like that. Yeah, the Gertrude person. Yeah. My God. Yeah, it's it's... 
And then she was turning her boys and her girls into violent sexual sadists. Sure. They were watching it all. And participating, ultimately. And participating. Yeah. This case is somehow, like, more disturbing than other crimes in, in oh. many ways. Because the abuse was carried out not just by the caregiver, but also by her own children, some as young as 10 years old. And some and, of their friends, right? And by other children yeah. in the neighborhood. For weeks, months, there was this casual entertainment of this torture. Like, it mirrored, you know, when you'd go over to your friends' houses after school and watch Scooby-Doo. It's like, instead of doing that, they would go over in the afternoon before their dinner time at their homes and casually torture a young girl, a peer. And at least a, a dozen children participated or at least watched and none felt sufficiently disturbed to even tell their own parents. That's one of the things that I think makes this different than a lot of the stories that we hear. And also, I think another thing is that Sylvia herself and her younger sister Jenny had opportunities to tell adults at school or church. Like at, in the beginning when it was when it the first few months it was happening, they she wasn't locked in the basement with no access to the outside world. They had adult relatives nearby. Her they, older sister she tried telling. They went to church, they went to school, you know, in the first several months when this was all starting and the things were actually happening, but neither of them said a word. And Jenny later explained that they thought it would only make things worse, and that's what we know, of course, about victims of violence. Sure. There's a learned helplessness that happens in those situations. Absolutely. And neither one of them could conceive of the possibility that anyone would come and protect them. Well, you have to, I mean, I think the only person that she tried telling, and it was, it was very close to her death, was her oldest sister she had run into or something. And her mm -hmm. older sister was like, I, this is absurd. I can't believe that. Like even nobody. Which validated what they thought, right? Right. And then so that learned helplessness is you have an entire community who's contributing to this and the forces that be that could protect her. The, the, the Gertrude was successful every single time saying, oh, she's just a negative influence on my kids. And then they would just be like, okay. And then yeah. go about their fucking day. Yeah. It's, it's really shocking because there were, I think what Kathy's talking about too is like there were many adults, other adults that would come by the home for various reasons that would see, this is before she was locked in the basement later, because they tortured her so much it was too obvious. They had to keep her block, out, locked away, which is fucking awful. But these other adults would come by the house and they would see Sylvia's battered appearance. They would see her bruises and blood and all, you know, not cleaned, emaciated. And they would did, they did nothing. Nobody pushed to say like, uh, this girl's not safe. I'm calling somebody. You have to remember too, if we're looking at the timeline of domestic violence laws, this was a time where people left other families alone. Nobody questioned people's business. And rural Indiana, I don't, you and know. Absolutely. Rural Indiana. So you didn't have the women's rights movement or the battered women's syndrome. None of that stuff no. was even on the radar. Men mm -hmm. were still allowed to beat the shit out of their wives and nobody was allowed to get involved. And children were told to be seen and not heard still. 
people stayed out of one another's business. Yeah, there were neighbors that would hear all of these things and contemplate doing things about it and never did. But on October 26, 1965, the police were called to 3850 East New York Street, where Sylvia's body lay on a mattress. Gertrude told them that the girl had been attacked by a gang of boys, and she even produced a note written in Sylvia's hand that seemed to confirm the story. But the cops, they could tell by the condition, by Sylvia's condition, obviously that this had not been a single incident because Sylvia was malnourished. She was covered in burns and bruises and sores and some of them old, you know, all different varieties of healing. And then there were the words, I am a prostitute etched in her stomach and it wasn't a new wound. So they knew that that was not the truth. And Gertrude was arrested and there was a trial in May of 1966. <sighs> Yeah. At her trial the following year, she denied all the charges, claiming that, oh, the kids must have done it. She entered a not guilty plea. And then, and a not guilty by reason of insanity, Kathy. <laughs> My God. I mean, this is a woman who charged children to come see this little girl on display. What kind of fucked up. Must you be? Yeah, and you said you read about her too, right, Gertrude? A little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, they don't mention much. We know that her previous husband was a police officer. He really didn't check much on the kids. She had three failed marriages. I mean, she's just screaming personality disorder and her own trauma all over the fucking map. Yeah. And then just projecting all of these extreme sexual, uh, you know, everything was about your prostitute, your whore, your this, your that. She was envious, I think, of Sylvia's position. Well, that's the way it's portrayed in the movies, for sure. They must have gotten that from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, Sylvia was young and pretty and the boys all liked her and that Gertrude used to be that way and, of course, was older and whatever. I don't know. Had you know, just miscarried. Yeah, yeah, and had seven kids. And obviously that is can be very burdensome. You know, she's in a situation where she had all of that. But on May 19th, 1966, a jury found Gertrude guilty of first degree murder. Well, Paula was found guilty of second degree murder. That's one of the daughters. Hobbs, along with uh, Gertrude's son, John, Hobbs was a friend, John and another neighborhood boy, Coy Hubbard, were convicted of manslaughter. And Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life terms in the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. And the boys were sentenced to two to 21 year terms in the Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton. In 1971, however, the Indiana Supreme Court granted Gertrude and Paula a new trial due to prejudicial atmosphere, quote-unquote, but Gertrude was again convicted of first-degree murder on August 5th, 1971, and Paula pled guilty to a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter and served about two more years in prison. The three boys were released on parole for good behavior. In 1968, track it, three years later, the boys were released on good behavior, and so 
after serving about two years each, I guess. So I would say three, but it was about two years each. And, you know, we can talk about how we feel about minors, you know, sentencing and, and all of that. It's very difficult to look at the story and see these boys and, and wonder. And it would be about age, right? If they were 16, 17, harder for me to and the coercion that was happening, them being being victims themselves in that family from that mom, and perhaps they didn't feel as if they had a choice. You know, I don't know. But in December of 1985, Gertrude was released on parole, and she changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa, where she lived in obscurity until her death from lung cancer on June 16th, 1990. Uh, she had married and moved to a farm in Iowa, and uh, Hobbs, I guess, died of cancer at the age of 21. And four years after, he was four years after he'd been released, and Hubbard had several brushes with the law. Lester and Betty Likens divorced. Those are Sylvia's parents. Uh, as you might imagine, that must have been awful. Betty remarried and died in 1998, and, and Jenny, the sister... Died in 2004, age 54. Wow. Mm. Before considering this episode for our series on female psychopaths and true crime, I had never read this story, and I didn't really know about it. And these two movies that were made in 2007, you know, one Elliot Page is in, and I really like them, and so... I, and I just didn't even know. Like, and the kid from uh, the guy who plays Dahmer is in this. He plays the friend that in the Amer American crime movie. The guy who plays Dahmer in Dahmer, the movie that came out recently. Mm -hmm. he, he's a kid in this, and he plays. Oh, Evan Peters, her friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that was crazy. I was like, oh, look. look yeah, it's it a, I mean, Catherine Keener. It's a big cast. Bradley Whitford. Yeah, so the acting mm. in the American and American crime one is pretty good, and I thought the ending was really interesting, but it's not, it's, not a, it's not a casual, fun watch. It's definitely, if you're interested in these terrible stories and what the human capacity for pain and torture and, and trying to survive, and also female psychopathy, because I really see this woman as a sexual sadist and a, and a violent, violent, violent woman. And I don't know too much about her, so this episode is more about the story of Sylvia, and that's kind of what it turned into, even though for me it started out as like a female psychopath conversation. Like Kathy said, I don't know too much about Gertrude, but... Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know how much there is on her. We we just know that with, although I don't like to make assumptions based on just little bits of information we have, we know that there was a level of chronic instability and failed relationships. Right. And Sylvia was the canvas that Gertrude, I think, vomited all of her loathing mm -hmm. onto. She was this container. Yeah. And what do we know about, domestic violence, what do we know about abuse is we, we meaning whoever that perpetrator might be, will look for someone they know will be a perfect container for that. And so what do we know about Sylvia? She had nowhere to go. She was young. She was vulnerable. She wasn't going to fight back. Even if she did, there was no way for her to fight back. 
this woman influenced the minds of children. She, she in some ways developed her own pediatric cabal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's Gang. just fucking weird. It, it is fucking she, weird. She was such a psychopath that yeah. she had this ability to create a child cult mm-hmm. that contributed and fascinated by it, it. It's almost like when we think about how people can be influenced, brainwashed, you don't join a cult all of a sudden you're in it. I mean, it was also abuse to these children who would have otherwise been probably innocent. Yeah. I imagine there were lasting effects of all of the children that participated or even just watched, you know, just watched, you can say just watched, but that's a, that's an offense. That's a criminal offense to be complicit with this. And, and from what I could tell is that she had the youths do most of the damage, most of the torture, you know, she started it out, but then as it grew because of her physical weakness or what have you, she had them doing it. So it's very much the psychopathy of cults. It's the psychopathy of, you know, the Charles Manson or what have you. And because it's not as from what we know, because it's one victim, there isn't this mass knowledge of this case because of that, right? Manson or whomever or Jones or whoever, because of the multitudes of people and the and the high profile people that Manson killed and then Jones, it's just pure numbers and lunacy and his presence in the media. But this kind of case, even though it has very much horrific and some similar qualities, it just goes under the radar. And also because we have a bias against believing that females can be psychopaths. That's right. So I just wanted to bring it to everyone's attention. You're welcome. Well, yeah, and and I'll the last <laughs> thing I'll add to that is what we do know about the majority of uh, female sex offenders and psychopaths is that their victims are children. Right. So there you have it. So I wanted everyone to know about this case because it's, uh, we do these female psychopath series f- for lots of reasons, but and I think she fits in there. Oh, God. Miss Gertrude. She might be at the top. Yeah. So thank you so much for tuning in. We really very much appreciate you. And this has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.